Welcome to the Consumer Rundown Podcast, your destination for the people, companies, and trends transforming today's consumer markets. We are your hosts. I'm Penny. And I'm Dimitri. Join us as Jake Carls, a co-founder of Midday Squares, reveals how they're disrupting the chocolate industry with bold storytelling, raw transparency, and unapologetic authenticity. We'll dive into their David versus Goliath battle with Hershey's and uncover Jake's unconventional marketing playbook. Jake's inspiring journey is packed with valuable insights for anyone who dares to be different. Jake, great to have you on the podcast. Let's start with an easy question. What motivated you to start Midday Squares? Well, thanks for having me. I'm fired up to be here. Midday Squares is a decade in the making. And what I mean by that is it was the vision of me, my sister, my brother-in-law together. And we each spend about 10 years doing entrepreneurship from failures to successes in different industries. And in early 2016, my sister was actually making a chocolate bar snack, a better for you snack for my brother-in-law because he was literally addicted to chocolate and was eating a ton of sugar chocolate, all that jazz. And she made him this healthier snack that was delicious for about two years. And he freaked, he loved it. And one day they actually wanted to work on a business together and they were looking at the food space because they both love food and they wanted to do that together. And they looked at the industry and they couldn't really make a product that was more innovative than the other products in the market. And then my brother-in-law received a report from a, a larger conglomerate here in Canada and it showed that dark chocolate was growing crazy year over year from like a saturated market. It was growing a lot. And that plant-based proteins was also on a nice tear. So he realized in his head from a product market fit standpoint, wow, you're making a baby of these two massive growth categories. you got a chocolate bar that's real chocolate, darker chocolate, married to function in terms of plant-based proteins and fibers. And that's when they called me and they're like, we got this product. We need you to help blow it up. And I joined Midday Squares as the third founder in July of 2018. And we launched the company August 2018. And since then, it's been a rocket ship, but a crazy chaotic rocket ship. What's your role in the company? I like to say I'm a rainmaker. And what that means is I go out and build the network of midday squares. I focus on how can I bring value to each one of our teammates? So whether that's a media relationship, whether that's an investor relationship, whether that's a retail relationship, I focus on making friends with these folks and then bringing them into the company when the time is right. So you see this a lot in the finance world and, and, or the legal world where you have an individual who just brings in the business or new business, new development, and isn't actually a lawyer or an investment banker, let's call it. And it's the same role. Just my focus is to go out there, make noise, build the brand, build the community, and then bring it back to the team when they need that relationship. So I kind of work independently, which is exciting and I don't have rules or anything like that. And I get to go on TV a lot, on magazines and all the fun stuff. So it's a good time. That sounds like a fun role. When you talk to investors, retailers, distributors, what's the pitch for Midday Squares? Simply, we are becoming the next Hershey's. And what I mean by that is, imagine if Hershey's or Mars or Mondelez were to start today, they wouldn't look like what they've created. They look very different. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. So we tell our investors, the size of the chocolate industry is, is over $100 billion annually globally. And there's room for disruption. And the way we're disrupting it is innovative product within a saturated market, but also a media first approach so storytelling at a very deep level to garner fandom rather than customer. How do you do that? How do you develop fans instead of customers? And how do you do it authentically? Storytelling is not necessarily naturally just a good thing for consumers. I think that if you want to be a good storyteller, you need two things. You need to be authentic. So that, I don't mean it as a buzzword. I mean, like actually be yourself and be true to that and what you stand for and who you are. 
that relates to people. The second thing is add value to the customer, meaning that if you want to add value to your storytelling, you have to evoke an emotion, angry, sad, happy, mean, whatever it is, you need to invoke that emotion or educate with entertainment. So there's two different ways to do that. And I think that for us at Midday Squares, what's worked is our vision was simply to show the unfiltered raw version of what it looks like to build a $100 million chocolate company behind the scenes. So we're showing the good, the bad, the ugly of building this business. We're showing you radically transparent moments in the business where you as a consumer can feel like you are part of this journey. You are on this journey with us and you have an actual impact. And what that does is when you go to that grocery store where there's 40,000 products on a supermarket shelf, we stick out like a sore thumb because the brand, you feel like you're buying from a friend, a family member, a neighbor. You don't just see a chocolate bar and and 40,000 other products. You see a chocolate bar that you actually are connected to. I think about Hershey's, the emotion it evokes a lot of the times is nostalgia. What emotion do you want to evoke with your customer base? So yeah, Hershey's does a phenomenal job in evoking legacy and legacy brand nostalgia, growing up on it type of thing. And they do a phenomenal job on that, in my opinion, and shout out to them. But I think what we do is we show people that you can be unapologetically yourself and win. So we try to encourage boldness and taking risk and actually being okay with that and not being fearful of it. Whenever the herd is going left, we go right. Or whenever everyone's going that way, we go the other way. And it creates this sense of giving somebody permission to go out and be bold, because if we can do it, we're average people, you can do it as well. So that's what our content really is driving down people's mentality is, how can you be more bold? I want to go back and talk about an issue that you guys faced a few years ago. There's a dispute between you guys and Hershey's regarding the use of the color orange on the packaging for peanut butter flavored bars, which Hershey's claimed resembled the branding for its Reese's products. When that first happened, what was the reaction within your team? A lot of people caved the pressure or caved to the herd mentality of, oh, I'm just going to stop this and move on. For us, what we did was instead of going to court, which is way too expensive, or just changing the package and moving on, what we did was something different. We used our strength. We played to our strength, which is storytelling. We invested dollars into the storytelling of how we could show our consumers why we're changing the package and how unfair this situation is and showing the authentic experience of what happened. That way you as the consumer can make the decision if you feel it's fair or not. And what we did was it kind of created this thing called chocolate gone crazy, where it was like David versus Goliath. There was a story of big chocolate versus small chocolate. And it wasn't even intentionally to do that, but it was the intentional aspect was to show the consumers why we're changing it. And what it did, it built more fandom. It made consumers want to support more and get behind the brand because this is what Americans and North Americans do is we love underdogs. We love the story of David versus Goliath. We cheer the underdog on. So that was the story. And then we went one step further and we actually created a music video, again, going even more creative, playing onto pop culture, doing things that are relevant to today's world, not just court cases and spending money. We created a a diss track, a music video, and it went viral, got picked up in the media. And again, more fans were built. What I would love to leave with people is when you're faced with adversity or faced with a moment of absolute chaos, stop and actually think of what you can do that's different and not just the traditional ways of actually going down because there's other paths that you may be able to trailblaze that might be best for you. But you've got to be willing to accept that if you do take those paths, there could be very serious consequences that can happen in your business. And we were okay with that. I think it's a great example of taking diversity and turning it into an opportunity. When you think about the last five years, was there one experience that you thought that I wish things had gone differently? 
We experienced something very tragic in our company early on in our first year of business. We had a, a staff retreat, which we did for our team. And we were a small team at the time. And we actually went to a uh, lake. And um, long story short, we actually had a, a drowning um, of one of our teammates. It's very sad. I think it was a very emotional moment in our team. And we lost somebody that was very, you know, fit like family to us. And in the moment, I realized that your life is so fragile. And whether you're building a business, you're not building a business, whatever you're doing, if you're not living in the present, you don't know your time's going to come when your time comes. And that made us as, as entrepreneurs or more as individuals more resilient and knowing that you got to give it your all no matter what. And you don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow, right? And I think that's shaped us as characters. Other than that, do we have any other moments of hardship? Yeah, we've ordered machines that cost a couple hundred thousand that were the wrong machines. We've made some errors like that. But again, every time you make an outlier decision or an unaverage decision, you have either an unaverage outcome. So either a good or a bad one. If it's a bad outcome, like a mistake, you can learn from that or you might not. And if you don't learn from it, you're the loser. So for us, what we do is when we make a mistake, as long as we're making more right decisions than wrong decisions, we're going to progress forward and hopefully build the next biggest chocolate snacking companies. That's such a tragic story. It's uh, very heartbreaking. Switching topics, how do you measure your own success as an entrepreneur and midday squares in general? From an entrepreneurial standpoint for midday squares, I think our success comes down to the promises we made to our board and did we meet them or do we not? So that's a margin profile. That's the manufacturing capacities. That is the sales that we try to achieve, the team we try to build. That's how we mark down the success of that. I think from a personal standpoint, where the three of us, my partners and I see success is if we continue to be ourselves while we are on this journey, meaning do we stay true to what we believe in our core value and our first principle thinking? If we do that, then we have won because we have won by not following the standard playbook and not following the standard path where society likes to guide people down. And I think that we've done a phenomenal job over the last five years, getting better and better at trusting that gut and building that confidence in ourselves. And I think it shows with the results of how we're building Midday Squares. And that stands out. I've been following Midday Squares for the last 12 months. And the one thing that struck me is how different you guys are in approaching marketing and approaching storytelling. So I'm not surprised that you've been so successful. What's your long-term goal? We really believe that this can be a very large chocolate company. And whether that means one day we sell it, maybe we sell it. If it means we take it public on the TSX in Canada, or the New York Stock Exchange, we do that. If we get a private equity firm to come in and help us scale, great. For us, we're just focused right now on getting to 100 million in revenue over the next two and a half years, getting there with a, hopefully a 66% margin, gross margin, and that's it. And then after that, look at what's the next chapter of Midday Squares. What does it look like? What does the brand look like at 100 million? How much impact have we made? Are we still remaining unapologetically ourselves? These are big questions that we want to see at that point. Do we do a docu-series on Netflix or HBO or Prime? Because that's part of who we are, is we take a ton of content. We have 35 terabytes of every moment that has happened in this business. We film everything, good, bad, ugly. So there's a lot of big questions, but our head is literally like horse blinders right now, focused on getting to that 100 million, and that's it, that's all. That'd be a great show to watch. A lot of people may not know this, but two years ago, you had a chance to sell the company. When you think back on that experience, what were the takeaways for you? That anything's possible. When you go through a moment like that, your, your mind takes you to all kinds of zones. It's like, what do you do? What do you do? You start feeling pressure. You start feeling anxiety even. And I think what I took from the moment is I got momentum, fuel that we can go. And not from a greed standpoint, from a standpoint of we really believe in this and we're willing to die on the hill. And what I mean by die on the hill is, is like, if we're going to lose, you're going to drag us off. 
that moment, it was a turning point for the company and my partners to really focus on always playing to win and not playing not to lose. That was really the moment where we just, the mindset kind of flipped and the three of us were very aligned. That being said, we're always open to offers that come through for the company. You never know when the moment we get tired, the moment that something happens in our lives, things can easily change. We always build relationships with a lot of the strategics because they do really cool things. They built legacy brands, but B, you never know if they're going to partner with you one day. Something I'm very interested in is understanding how founders make decisions. What frameworks do you use to make decisions? Yes, everything comes back to first principle thinking. Core values and first principle thinking, if we're operating like that as leaders, then we are winning. But that being said, there's a saying, strong opinions loosely held. And that's how we live. That also goes back to our core values and our first principle thinking. And I just think if we stay focused on that first principle thinking for the rest of our business, then we will have built a new chocolate snacking conglomerate. Because again, I want to remind everybody, chocolate is over $100 billion annually globally. And it's the, one of the largest snacking sets in the game. And there hasn't been that much innovation. There's room. Their consumer is more health conscious than ever before. And the consumer is more engaged to choose a brand that relates to them or is relevant to them than ever before as well. I agree with you. There's a ton of opportunity within the chocolate vertical, a lot of growth potential. One other interesting thing about Mende Squares is that it's a Canadian brand. And it's very hard for Canadian brands to make in the US. There aren't many examples of that. So how did you guys do it? Again, it's extremely difficult to cross border and be successful cross border due to the capital and the infrastructure requirements. The United States is over 300 million people. Canada is in the 30s, right? Of millions. So it's 10 times the size almost or even larger. When we entered the US, we had a little bit of a following as we realized that the power of social media is really powerful. And we started to create really good content. And again, going viral last year, I think we drove over 40 million organic views and a lot of them were coming from the US. So when that was coming in, we were creating mass amounts of awareness and fans. And then those fans, when we opened a store like Target nationwide, they went and they bought up the product like crazy there because they're like, oh my God, it's available in my neighborhood. And that was the strategy. So right now we invest a tremendous amount of dollars into our media. Media drives a bunch of awareness. And then we get the distribution needed from an infrastructure standpoint to support that fandom that's being built. And I, I'd like to see what that looks like when we actually have real budgets to actually go out and spend. We don't really have budgets right now. We're operating on, on sh very small budgets. I think what we're seeing is that with social media, you don't need to have a large budget to be successful from a marketing perspective. And you guys are one example of that. Something else that's very different about you is your approach to manufacturing. The trend has been to outsource manufacturing to third-party providers, but you guys aren't doing that. Tell me more about that. Something unique about Midday Squares is we had to build a factory and figure out how to scale something that's never been scaled before in this, in this type of innovation. We took a lot of our time and energy to focus on that rather than focusing on growth or focusing on building a brand. That was just a secondary thing. Now we're evening it out because we have the right teammates in place and the factory is full, almost fully automated. So we've gotten that under control. Now it's like, okay, let's go guns blazing full throttle into building the brand, the awareness and the proper distribution and sales model that's actually under control with the out of stocks with the merchandising, and then go from there. But now we're going to put the budget towards it before it was all put to the other other side of the business. So it sounds like you're entering a new phase of growth. You mentioned that the goal is to get to 100 million in two years. How do you do that? Yeah, so simply distributions, we only have four SKUs. So getting all our four SKUs listed into eight, in the 8,000 stores we're currently in is important. But also building out the problems that we have with out-of-stocks and all these things, there's major issues with that. Their sales distribution model and game plan needs a fine-tune. 
We are already doing it in Canada and it's working. So we're going to apply that to the US. And then a couple more major retail partners, potentially down the line at Costco and a Walmart might be interesting to get that mass exposure because we are not just a better for you product that sells just at niche markets like Whole Foods or Sprouts. We're focused on every consumer in the sense of if you want indulgence and chocolate and function, we're going to give it to you wherever you can get it because it's important that we could give it at an affordable price, which we are at the 249 range, which is relatively affordable for most folks that want some sort of functional treat in their day. We'll get there. The only reason I wouldn't get there is if we lose our steam and energy. How do you prevent that? How do you stay motivated? Therapy is one. So I, we go to therapy once a week together, my partners and I, that, that focuses on keeping the conversation aligned. But also surround myself with good people that are high energy, optimistic folks that believe. I've been around people that doubted us and don't believe in us and judge us, make fun of us. And that kills your spirit. That kills your energy and your whole ethos and, and momentum. So I try to surround myself with positive momentum and that actually creates more positive momentum, which actually compounds very quickly. I agree with you hundred percent. I've been in environments where there's a lot of negative energy and no matter how positive you are, it completely brings you down. It's hard to stay motivated in, in that environment. Whereas the opposite, you're in an environment where people are motivated, positive, trying to make something happen. It really lifts you up and makes you want to do the same thing. Exactly. A hundred percent agree with you. Any advice to anybody that's listening to this podcast is go find some people that, that motivate you and find people that care about you, but will challenge you as well. That is a great piece of advice. Jake, thanks for joining us. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate the time you've given us. This concludes our episode with Jake Carls, a co-founder of Midday Squares. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes of the Consumer Rundown podcast and visit us at consumerrundown.com. See you next time.